Our scripture lesson first comes from Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Daniel records, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Our second fulfillment, or our second scripture lesson is from Revelation chapter 1, which is uh, my sermon text this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to signify to his slaves the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the land, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these scriptures. We thank you that you have given us this book to understand it, to love it, to enjoy it, to be a great comfort to us, even as it was to those who heard it in John's day. We pray that you would be with me to open it up, to make it understandable, that we may glory in your love and in your kindness to us as your church and as your bride. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 My goal in beginning a series in the book of Revelation that will be sporadically coming to you over the next couple of years is that you feel comfortable in the book of Revelation, that you enjoy it like you enjoy any other book, one that you traverse in easily, like the Song of Solomon. Everybody's good with that book, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. More like Ephesians, where you read it and you it, it comes to you directly and you understand it and you don't have problems. That's not true in the Song of Solomon. But also, I want to start a series on the book of Revelation to disabuse you of all the crummy interpretations that sell lots of books, particularly at this time of the season when something happens in Israel. You get all these new books out. The rapture is about to happen, the tribulation, the man of lawlessness is now on the throne and he's revealed himself and blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff is bunk. Because John has told us, and you remember from my other sermons, this stuff was soon to take place. It did take place. Most of this book has been fulfilled. It, you don't read the book of Joshua and expect it to be fulfilled. You're reading history. And that's how you should read most of the book of Revelation. Now, I want to start, since we're looking at the book starting with chapter 1 today, before we get to that, I want to start by giving you two Outlines. The first one, as I mentioned before, is organized around the four uses of the phrase in the Spirit. John says, I was in the Spirit. And he says that four times. Chapter 1, I read it earlier. Uh, chapter 4, chapter 17, and chapter 21. And these four uh, phrases, these four uses of in the Spirit, uh, describe the exalted... And finally glorified Lord Jesus. Because in and through them, he is glorified with a bride. When he starts off, he's not glorified with a bride. And that's the big story in the book of Revelation. And if, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I want you to leave with understanding that the book of Revelation, the main theme is the son of man gets a bride, a glorified bride. <clears throat> a glorious bride for the exalted uh, son. It's not a book about the end of the world, okay? The first Adam was glorified when he was given Eve, correct? 
She's the glory of man, Genesis 2. Uh, what, what does Adam say? Um, and I'm trying to think what he says. Uh, uh, flesh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. And 1 Corinthians, her hair is given to her as glory. And she's the glory of the man. All right? Well, the second Adam is glorified when given a glorious bride. And that bride is described at the end of the book in chapters 21 and 22. We'll read some of that a little bit later on. For a man to be glorified, he has to have a wife. She glorifies him. Single men are not glorious, okay, until they get a wife. And they often know that. That's why they try to get a wife. So in in chapter 1, verse 10, when he first says, uh, I was in the Spirit, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We'll talk about that. And then in chapter 4, just after the the chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus has given uh, words of rebuke to the churches, John is told to come up in heaven. He's going to be shown something else. And up there, he sees Jesus, who's the lamb that opens the book with the seals. But he's not glorified, but he's certainly exalted to the right hand. He's the lamb who was slain. In chapter 17, the third use of this in the spirit, John is beckoned by one of the angels that has the golden bowls of wrath. And they're poured out by this point. But he comes up and he says, come with me. I'll take you to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he goes to the spirit. And what does he see? He sees a bride, but it's the false bride. It's the apostate bride. It's the whore on the back of the beast. And it's Jerusalem. It's the apostate church. It's the Jewish leaders. It's the second beast, uh, the the, uh, second beast that comes from the land. And that's what he sees there. But it's not the true bride. Finally, in chapter 21, verse 9-11, apparently the same angel comes and says, John, come with me and I'll, I'll show you the wife, the bride of the Lamb. And he's taken in the Spirit to a mountain and he sees this new church coming down. And I remember when you go up on a mountain, that's where David, that's where Ezekiel, that's where Moses gets his vision of the temple. And here is the church coming down as this glorious temple. And it's got all these jewels and it's beauty, beautiful and it's radiant. And that's the bride of Christ, which of course is you all. Just as you all are looking pretty this morning and you guys handsome, that's what Jesus sees there in chapter 21. Peter Lightheart in his commentary has this to say. He says, the book of Revelation describes the glorification of the Adamic bridegroom by the reception of the bride who is his glory. The woman is the glory of the man, the same is also for the son of man. Hence, Revelation is one of the greatest romantic poems ever written. So think of the book of Revelation as a romantic poem, not a book where you go read scary stuff of apocalyptic literature of the end of the world, Denzel Washington in a black robe going around saving what's left of mankind. That's not what it's talking about. Okay. In fact, it's the beginning of a new world because it's the new creation. The the bride comes down and is glorious uh, for us. Now that's the first outline, the first, and that's very simple, in the spirit. Chapter 1, chapter 4, 17, 21, you've got those memorized. Another simple outline is one I went over before, and I think this one helps. And that's the covenant renewal model, uh, or covenant renewal worship model outline. And why is that significant for the theme of the book? Because through that covenant renewal worship model, the bride is made beautiful and glorified. Now think about it. 
In chapter 1, the bride is called to worship. Her eyes are fixed on Jesus. In chapters 2 and 3, she's washed by the blood of the Lamb as she's confronted with her sins and repents and is made uh, clean. In chapters 4 through 19, she's consecrated, set apart by the reading of the word, which are the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Okay, she's consecrated, set apart. In chapter 19, verse 6, and the rest of the chapter, she communes with her Lord. She feeds on her Lord, and her Lord eats her. This is marital bliss. That's what's going on here. And then finally, in chapters 20 through 22, she's blessed and commissioned. Blessed as a wife and revealed to the world as a glorious bride, one who hearkens the world to come in to the, her city and get their robes washed and made clean and eat from the tree of life, which the leaves are for the healing of the nations, right? So that covenant rule worship model is about the bride and her glorification. It's about you guys, because that's what happens to you in this worship service. You're in heaven right now, being set apart, hearing the word of God, being chopped up. You're never going to be the same. And not just because I'm crazy looking or I have white hair like the Ancient of Days. It's because of the word of God which cuts us up. So this book is all about the bride and her glorification. Let's look at chapter 1 briefly. Um, Chapter 1 gives us the introduction. It introduces some of the main characters. Look at verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to signify to his slaves. Most of your Bibles has the word servants. It's doulos in the Greek. It's just slaves, okay? These are guys owned outright. And things that must soon, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed are the one who reads aloud the words, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. For the time is for 3,000 years away. No, the time is near. Uh, in verse 1, the underlying word for revelation means to uncover or to unveil. It's the same word used in the Septuagint for the woman who the husband thinks has been doing uh, adultery, committing acts of adultery, and her hair is let down. She's unveiled. Okay. In the immediate context here, Jesus is the one who reveals or unveils. But in terms of the whole book, Jesus is the unveiled one, the revealed one. He is first unveiled here in chapter 1, but only fully unveiled in the unveiling of his bride. That's when he becomes complete. So the book is about the revelation, the unveiling, the uncovering of Christ. It's not good for the last Adam to be alone any more than it was for the first Adam. This unveiling book is a Genesis 2 story in which the father constructs a bride for his son. Just like the tabernacle and the temple, they were pictures of Israel and of the people of Israel. And God lived among them and dwelt among them in the Holy of Holies, just like Jesus dwells in your heart. Now, we see that God gave it to show to his slaves. God is the Father here in that verse. Um, God gave to him, that's Jesus, and the slaves refer to those who follow Jesus, believers, disciples. How is Jesus unveiled? Well, Jesus sends his angel to John, who sees the visions, the word of God, in order to reveal Jesus. Now, who is the angel here? Well, the angel, of course, is the spirit of God. It's the spirit of Jesus 
whom Jesus promised to send. Listen to this from John 3, uh, 15, 13. Jesus promised him, quote, him to you, quote, to declare to you the things that are to come. And that's what he promises to do. And in John 14, 15, and 16 at the end, the Spirit is going to be sent by Jesus to be the helper. So that's what he's doing here. The angel is the Spirit. So the flow of the revelation is from the Father to the Son, then from the Son to the Holy Spirit, then to John, who bears witness of the testimony to the slaves of Jesus. It's kind of convoluted there, but that's the flow. From the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Holy Spirit, and then to John, and then to the slaves of Jesus. Now, usually slaves don't know what their master is doing, but the slaves of Jesus will know, making them his friends. So this unveiling of Jesus that's given by the Father, shown and sent by the Son, and signified by the Spirit, is a Trinitarian project from the beginning. The future can only be revealed by a God who is and who was and who is coming. A God who is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, who embraces past and future. That's verse 8. We'll get there in a minute. Now, he says to reveal the things that must soon take place. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, where Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar the things that must soon take place. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand a vision. Nobody else could figure out. Daniel goes in and saves him and the three guys uh, from being put to death. It's the things that are about to take place. Daniel's vision is future to him. It, it begins soon enough because Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold. But it's all future. We're here, John sees and hears what will soon take place. And what is about to happen is the last stage of Daniel's vision where that statue, particularly the feet made of iron and clay, the statue struck in the feet by the stone that is cut without hands, and that stone grows into a mountain that covers the whole world. Well, you know that's Isaiah 2 as well, the mountain that covers the world. That's Christ and his kingdom. So what's happening in this book is that stone striking that Roman mixture with Israel, putting an end to that whole statue, the whole ancient, the order of the ancient empire that Daniel has laid out in Daniel chapter 2, or the Lord gave him. This book is not merely about the fall of Jerusalem, but depicts the end of the imperial order established by Daniel's statue in Daniel 2. Remember, from Daniel's day on until the days of Jesus, it's just those empires of the statue. It's Babylon, it's the Medo-Persian Empire, it's the Grecian Empire, and then the Romans come. And they fall uh, later on. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, and blessed are those who hear, John says. Well, this book is envisioned to be a public reading and a public hearing. It's not a private book. The word is to go out. Kind of like what Paul says the Colossians, Read this letter aloud and then give it to Laodicean so they can read it aloud and then you get their letter, which we never got. Um, for the time is near, a double witness, that division is about those things that must soon take place. Twice, he tells him, Near in his own time. Near for those reading and keeping and valuing the vision for their blessing. Near for the seven churches that are listed in verse 11 and that get letters in chapters 2 and 3. Okay, and then... My last sermon I talked about that time is near, soon to take place 
It's all said again in chapter 22 at the end of the book, in case you've forgotten in the middle. It was soon to take place. <clears throat> Moving on to verses 4 through 8, with these verses, uh, John introduces himself and blesses his readers who will hear and keep the prophecy that he sees in the vision. He blesses his readers by bestowing God's favor upon them, God's grace that leads to peace. Let's reread those. Verse 4. John and the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the land, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God his Father. Okay. Uh, kind of a long introduction there. Uh, this favor leads to peace in this Trinitarian formula. Uh, though uh, in this Trinitarian formula is laid out here, there's a unique twist. Uh, the Father is mentioned first and then the Spirit, not the Son, and then the Son is mentioned third. Uh, Peter Lighthart points out that that's the order of the Incarnation since the Son is conceived by the overshadowing of the Spirit. The Father and the Spirit work in bringing uh, the second person Trinity in his flesh. And in some sense, it's really the order of incarnation here um, in that the church is going to be born by the persecution, by the martyrdom, and it's going to be born into this new kingdom that now rules the world. The Father is him who is and who was and who is to come. The Spirit is pictured by the seven creational spirits that are before the throne seven being the number of creation, not the number of completeness. Everybody always says, oh, it's the number of completeness. No, it's the number of creation, seven days. So the Spirit is there before the throne of God, and then the Son is Jesus Christ. And he's noted by a threefold title, and then three things that he's done. The threefold title uh, appears to come out of Psalm 89, where these three things are mentioned. Uh, Jesus Christ, in verse 5, the faithful witness. Uh, David talks about how uh, David, or, or David in his psalm, talks about being a faithful witness. Here, I think the faithful witness is he's a witness of God's promise to bring David's son to reign and rule, suffering as he did so. He's the firstborn of the dead. Psalm 89 mentions uh, David being the firstborn, implying, of course, firstborn of the dead that others will rise with and because of him. He's the firstborn. Others will follow him, being the first to return from the dead. And he's also the ruler of the kings of the land, especially exercising dominion over the Jewish leaders, which is what the book is mainly about. It is mainly about the destruction of the old covenant, the destruction of those who would not listen to Jesus as Messiah. If you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, you think, well, this is a broken letter. We've heard this all before. The Jews didn't get, didn't get it the first time, and they don't get it the second time. Um, those three titles lead to three things that he's done. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So he's the one who loves us. He's given himself for us. John 3.16, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. He's covered you. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sins. He sees the blood of Jesus. And he goes, oh, I've killed 
Jesus for Julian's sins. I don't need to kill Julian this morning. I can love Julian and feed him because he's one of my son's kids. And he's a brother of my son. And welcome, Julian, into my my house. Okay, That's what's happening there. Uh, he loves us because he died for us. And he made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Just like Jesus is a king and a priest. We'll see that in a little bit. And then what you have next is a doxology. And uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a doxology to Jesus. And uh, this doxology is the center of the structure of chapter 1. There is a chiastic structure, but it's kind of involved. But just remember, at the center, this is the center where Jesus is worshipped. He's praised. And at the end is the unveiling in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's a book about the unveiling of Jesus. And what happens in verses 12 through 20 is the unveiling of Jesus. John sees him, and we're, we're given a description. So in the very center of it, <clears throat> Jesus is worshipped and glorified. He's praised. Uh, He's unveiled and revealed as the exalted Savior. Uh, Verse 7 states a thematic summary of the book of Revelation. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, these phrases, this verse, is an amalgamation of two passages, Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, verses um, 10 through 14. The book of Revelation is about the Son of Man ascending upon the clouds of the Shekinah glory to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom and an everlasting dominion where all kings and people serve him and his bride. Okay, he ascends to receive uh, this kingdom, which is his bride, if you read in Daniel 7 further on. That's what's happening here. And that's that phrase, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's from Daniel 7. We read that earlier. And every eye will see him. That's from Zechariah. And and in chapter 11 of Zechariah, the shepherd of the Lord is killed, and then they mourn that in chapter 12. Uh, But this is about how the Jews will mourn of the Messiah whom they pierced upon the cross. This first happens on the day of Pentecost which is passed to this writing. The day of Pentecost, what does Peter say? You men of Israel who murdered the Messiah, well, they're struck. What should we do? Repent and be baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They mourn that they've murdered him and they repent and they come into the kingdom. But it will also happen in the future, particularly in chapter 18 uh, of this vision, when the various Jewish tribes of the land mourn on account of him, after they perceive that the fall of the harlot city is the just judgment of God. When they see that what God has done is righteous, they begin to mourn him. And, and some repent. Even repentant kings of land bring their glory to Jesus in chapter 21. So for Christ and for you, the cross is the pathway of exaltation. They see Jesus, the one whom they've pierced. Uh, the death of Jesus brings mourning and repentance to those who see, who understand what God has done in him. And of course, that's for us too. When we see Jesus, we mourn and we repent. And it is our exaltation with him when we unite with him in that. Uh, that Jesus will ascend to the throne on the clouds and rule is double witness by God himself. Verse 8. 
I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, There's several things here. Uh, These things will happen. This is kind of an amen here. Will happen because God is the first and the last word. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, He is the one who always is and was who is to come. That's riffing off of the name of Yahweh. I am who I am. Always present. And then, of course, the Almighty is that's the God of power from the days of the patriarch. So borrowing three Old Testament names uh, affirms and confirms that, yes, Jesus is uh, to be glorified. He is to be worshipped. And, yes, he is coming with the clouds and the nations and the, the Jews will mourn him. In verses 9 through 20, we have the unveiling of Jesus. And with these verses, you get to the heart of the call to worship in chapter 21. Because you actually get to see the exalted Jesus walking amongst his church, the bride. Uh, Jesus is the priest king in commanding control of the kingdom of the world, both good and evil, which we'll see. Um, Now prominent in this section is the voice of Jesus. Verse 10, verse 15, verse 17. It's loud like a trumpet. Uh, it sounds like many waters. Of course, that's what the ancient days always sounds like, right? In the Old Testament, like many waters, many horses, that kind of thing. And it's authoritative. He speaks to John. He says, tells him to fear not, and I want you to write, write this. Um, Jesus is the very picture of Yahweh who spoke to Israel uh, from Mount Sinai where the Israelites... Uh, saw nothing, but they heard the voice, right? The word of God is living and active. Pictures like idols can be dead, but our God speaks. He's alive with power. But John also sees, he turns and he sees, just as Israel saw the dark clouds and they saw the lightning and they heard the thunder and those things, uh, those two things go, go together as then word and vision go together. It's the same thing in the Gospels. What is Jesus speaks? Uh, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees doubt. And he says, because your doubt, take up your bed and walk. Okay? There's sight that goes along with the hearing that confirms that. And the the all all the uh, miracles confirm what is said. So John reintroduces himself clearly positioning himself in the tribulation and the suffering and the kingdom that are in Jesus as Jesus foretold in Matthew 24. Go there and read about the tribulation. And that tribulation would begin and bring about, it would be during that period when the stones of the temple were torn down. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and there's a definite article It's not just a tribulation. This is not just you because you wreck your car and it's totaled, Alan. Uh, It's not about that. It's about about the tribulation that Jesus foretold, all right, the kingdom and the patient endurance. So John and his worshiping brothers on Patmos follow Jesus, and they suffer the afflictions of the world. They inherit a kingdom, and so does Jesus persevering with with his bride. When John's told to write, he turns to see the voice and instead sees the heavenly holy place in his vision. And he sees seven golden lampstands. And that tells you there's a heavenly scene. Uh, it's a holy, the holy place in the temple or tabernacle. 
uh, his first glimpse John gets is of the church. Because we're going to find later on that these lampstands are the church. And you kind of know that from the furniture inside uh, of the temple and in the tabernacle that the lampstand shines upon the bread. The lampstand is the light. Jesus says, let your light shine before the world. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the oil. But it is uh, the church that shines that light out. And we are filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit, which shines and upholds the light of Jesus in the world. Uh, Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. He next sees the tender of the lamps, the guy that's there to trim the wicks and to put more oil in them to make sure they keep working. All right? Jesus is with his church to make sure that she keeps burning brightly, uh, which is what we will see in those letters to the seven churches, right? He's going to confront them with their sins. They're not burning so brightly. In fact, some of them are almost put out. And he's got to warn them, make changes or else I'll come and remove the whole lampstand. He cleans these lampstands so that they shine brightly during their persecutions and endurance and patience that are in him. Now what Jesus or what John sees when he turns is also a compilation of figures. Look at verse 13. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. All right? Uh, clothed a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Uh, well, what what is the compilation? Well, one like a son of man. That's a priestly connotation. Son of man exclusively in the Old Testament, but for one place, is used in Ezekiel. It's, an, it's, a, it's a denotation of Ezekiel the priest. Son of man, son of man. But The other place is Daniel 7. And it's one like a son of man. So Daniel says one like Ezekiel is coming up to receive the kingdom, this priest kingdom motif, or priest king motif. And so one like a son of man um, comes up. Uh, But it's also used in Daniel 7. So Jesus is pictured not only as one who is ascending, but also like the enthroned ancient of days here, because we have these other pictures. He has a head of white, like wool, clothing like white wool. We saw that in Daniel uh, chapter 7. The Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 has fire coming out from his throne. Well, Jesus has fiery eyes as well. Uh, uh, Fiery eyes that see and judge. Organs of discernment and judgment, which is what happens in chapter 2 and 3. He sees the churches and brings judgment. Well, that's what the Ancient of Days does in Daniel 7. He sees what's going on, and he destroys that little horn that we briefly read about because he's a wicked wicked braggart. Uh, He has feet of burnished bronze, we're told. Who has feet of burnished bronze in the Bible? Five dollars if you figure that out before I mention it. It's Gabriel. And Jesus is like Gabriel, a glorified man, chosen to carry the vision for the glorification of the bride, just as Gabriel did. Gabriel came to, to, to elucidate for, for Daniel what was to take place, to explain things. We also see that Jesus is the bridegroom of Psalm 19, coming out of his chamber 
joyfully to claim his wife, his bride, willing and able to wash her tenderly yet thoroughly with the sword of the word that issues from his mouth. Uh, wash her with the word. But also, he's the warrior husband that will defend his bride with the sword of his mouth in chapter 19 as he kills the two beasts and as he throws Satan in the lake of fire in chapter 20. What John sees causes him to symbolically die. So great is the glory compared with his weakness. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Um, Holy men know that they're sinners. This is what happens every time a holy guy is confronted with the second person of Trinity. Sometimes with angels. They fall on their face. Joshua, Ezekiel, even Peter, when Jesus tells him stuff, falls on his face and says, Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Okay? So, John is a holy man. Uh, but John is resurrected. And he's touched by the hand that holds his fellow brothers, the seven stars and seven angels of the churches, making him one of the stars as well. Notice up in verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars, but then in verse 17, he laid his right hand on me. So he's got seven stars, and he and this is where, where, where John belongs, in the right hand with the other stars, because they're brothers in the tribulation and in the perseverance and the endurance of Jesus. They are the pastors of of the churches. Um, He becomes the chief star, in effect, writing to the seven stars. A messenger writing to other messengers who are all men. John will dictate messages for them, for the seven pastors responsible for the life of the churches they pastor. That's why I don't think they're angelic beings, the angels of churches. They're messengers. The word angel means messenger. And John will write to them as men. For though some of them, uh, because though some of them have been faithful, some of them have sinned. Which angel do you know in the Bible who works for God has sinned? All right? They don't need to repent. Some of these angels need to repent and return to their first love. That's what we do. That's what men do. And some of them have to be put off for their lukewarmness. And, and they're getting ready to be spit out of the mouth of Jesus, okay, if they don't uh, go hot for him. So these are men that he's collected with in the right hand of Jesus. And what's interesting here is though the law was given through angels in Galatians 3, the message of Jesus to his churches is not. No more. The message of Jesus comes through spirit-filled men, uh, through the slave John to the human Uh, slaves of the churches, the pastors. And again, this is a key theme of the book. In Christ, man now rules the world, not angelic beings. Uh, For a little while, we're made lower. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you're going to rule and judge the angels? And in the whole book of Revelation, what happens, you have 24 elders who get off their throne and do things in chapter 4 throughout the book. And by the end of the book, they're all replaced with these ascended, martyred saints who rule for a thousand years. It's we who rule in Christ. Um, John, by whom is he resurrected? Well, the second person, Trinity, 
uh, he says that I fear not, I'm the first and the last, the second person trinity. And he's raised by the living one, the risen one, who's put death behind him. He died, but he is alive forevermore. Death has become a beginning rather than an end. We think of it as the end, but for us it's really the beginning of a fantastic eternal life without sin and the ravages of sin. Having passed through death and come to eternal life, Jesus has been given control of the gate of death. With the keys of death and Hades, the action of death and the place where the dead go, he has authority to open and shut the grave. He locks some into death and keeps them there. That's the lake of fire. With others, he unlocks death and releases them. And death cannot pull them back in. This, of course, is welcome news for John's hearers, uh, for the suffering and martyred bride. The living one is the one whose eternal and unconquerable life begins in death. That's where it began. It's only looking up from there. All right, They have nothing to fear as they read this book. So what are some implications in closing? At the end of chapter 1 with this book of Revelation, where do you stand or where do you sit? Well, hopefully, you now believe that the book of Revelation is not that crazy or mysterious. I mean, I just explained it, right? It was a piece of cake. There's nothing here that's wild and wooly. You don't need drugs or mushrooms to understand what's going on here. You just read the text with the rest of the Bible and you'll get it. Hopefully, too, uh, and because of the outlines, you now see it. it is the story, the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 1, of the Father's love for His Son in providing a purified and holy bride for Him. And that continues to say, you're that purified and holy bride. You're, you called into worship. You see Jesus. Uh, you see Pastor Thacker. He's the picture of Jesus. And then you got cleansed. And now you're in here enjoying His presence. Soon you're going to sit down and eat and feed on your Savior. Whatever that means, right? Okay. Uh, but this is you. Hopefully you see the Father's love for the Son and giving the Son a message to the redeemed people that will guide them in the near future through the fires and trials that purify. The book of Revelation, there's a lot of martyrdom goes on. There's a lot of people getting killed and they're Christians and a lot of pagans as well. Uh, again, it's a model for you when you feel being persecuted, pick up the book of Revelation. Hopefully... This morning, you see that the work of the Father is through the Spirit who fills the Son. And you see how the community of the Trinity provides a model for the church. We believe that God is three in one. We just confess that. And so we work together as a community. We're not Muslims. We're not just one guy at the top and everybody underneath conforms and obeys at the point of a gun. No. We work together as a community, serving one another, giving our lives to one another, dying for one another, building up the whole community. And each week, that union you have with the Trinity is strengthened as you uh, eat on Christ, as you comprehend that and rejoice in the Lord, tasting Him He's good. Hopefully this morning you also see how important the call to worship is and that you'll never be late again of your own accord. Because you're missing the entrance into heaven to see and worship your glorified Lord and Savior. Because when you miss that entrance, you shine a little less for Jesus because you missed out on some of the cutting and some of the shaping of the Word of God on your heart and your soul and your life. Some of the filling of the oil of the Holy Spirit. 
You're one of those lampstands that isn't there to get more oil when you miss the call to worship. Hopefully you realize that's not good. Nothing else is really more important than worshiping the Lord on Sunday. Everything else takes a back seat. It all begins here. This is what teaches you how to understand the world. There are several Psalms where David is confused. He doesn't, can't put things together until he goes in to the sanctuary. And when he gets in the sanctuary, it's all crystal clear. Hopefully, you also see that the Trinitarian God really does care for churches, for those weekly worshiping bodies that have all kinds of problems and imperfections, but yet churches that he calls out to worship each week to receive his sacrifice of love and fellowship and service as he trims as they trim the wicks and replenish us with new oil. And hopefully you see that it's Jesus who walks among his churches as the groom, inspecting them, even doing so today. And that fact should give you some pause if you're thinking about engaging in sin or being lazy, a failure to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, okay, and body. Uh, Jesus is amongst you. He's not absent. He's not the watchmaker that wound it up and went to the beach. Lastly, hopefully you'll come to see this book as a great encouragement for your soul, for it clearly presents Jesus, the Jesus you believe in, as the living one who's alive forevermore, and that in him and only in him can you pass through death to the beginning of life evermore as his everlasting bride. And let me tell you, all will face death at some point. So far, everybody has. Even Jesus faced death, but he rose through it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its encouragement. We ask that you would help us to be encouraged by this. Help us to be here for worship, to worship your Son, to worship you and the Spirit, to be filled by the Trinity as we love our Lord and Savior and as we love and serve each other. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.